Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, in the beach shack is an absolute legend. He came to fame by winning the Open and Junior Ironman titles for Surf Life Saving and then went on to represent Australia at two Olympic Games and also getting a bronze medal in the 84 Los Angeles Olympics. Grant Kenny is a household name around Australia and the world for Ironman racing. He captured everybody's attention, put Ironman on the map, along with his father, which he talks about, who won the very first Ironman title. Grant joins me in the beach shack and he tells his story and also getting his pilot's license at the young age of 16. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Grant Kenny. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have an Ironman legend, surf life-saving legend, Grant Kenny, GK. How are you, mate? Not bad, thanks. How about yourself? Good, mate, good. Mate, it's uh, great to have you in here. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we'll start off with growing up on the Sunshine Coast. What was that like? Mate, I think I was very fortunate. You know, where where we live, which was literally across the road from the beach, I, I could walk across and I'm on the beach at Alex, right right across the road from the surf club. And that's where I pretty much grew up right the way through till um, 1984 when I was 16, when we moved like two blocks back and up on the hill. So, mate, I was very fortunate not only to live that close to the ocean from a lifestyle perspective, but of course, you know, dad being a surfer, an Ironman, a, you know, a shaper of surfboards, you know, quite literally downstairs had, you know, a selection of, of kit to take across the road and go and have a have a surf or a muck around. And of course the early days were, you know, for me, you know, quite literally no board, then you know, a little sort of almost a, a kickboard type thing and progressed through the, you know, the the foamy midget farrellies that the nippers had and you know, so so mate, it was very, very good from a you know, from a lifestyle perspective and the coast was a lot smaller then. But you know, one of the one of the other great things was, you know, Dad was also into sailing. So we'd you'd leave literally leave a you know a sailing cat across the road on the beach, and he'd pull it out and take me in. And I remember you know hanging on to the front crossbar on the trampoline and just spearing out into the ocean to what seemed like forever. It was it was a great place to grow up. Well, mate, did you play many sports? Yeah, you know, or was it mainly around the surf and ocean, and as you said, sailing. Yeah, look, I, I I pretty much had a crack at everything, you know, particularly through school. You know, at school they, they make you do everything, you know, netball <laughs> included, you know, <laughs> basketball. But I played, um, you know, I played a little bit of AFL for the local club when I was younger. You know, I played rugby league at school. You know, cricket. I was never I was never any good at cricket at all. So I I, I sort of you know had a crack at everything. I I I learnt karate from a very young age when I was when I was eleven, and I actually think that. You know, I gained a lot from that, you know, just in terms of not not so much about – it wasn't about how to fight or anything like that. It was around discipline 
and and mindset. And I think over the years I've drawn that a lot in my competition. So look, mate, I I, I sort of tried everything. I'm really bad with a bat and ball, and and so you know if I, if you if we were to go to a golf course, it's going to be a really frustrating exercise. <laughs> well, mate, you, you said you came through the nippers, and then did you get any results there, or did results start coming a bit later on? Mate, really good question and interesting story because you know you you can be king of a of a little pond, and then as the ponds get bigger, you know you sort of work your way down if you like. And I think just through, you know, probably having developed a little bit of natural ability to handle myself in the waves from having been in there since quite literally I was a toddler, at Alex in the nippers, you know, I, I was doing all right, you know. So you're sort of one of the, you know, the better competitors there. Then you go to branch and, you know, of course you're then getting introduced to, you know, another level of, and, and the kids from the other clubs. And, um, and you know, I'd... I'd you know, typically get some sort of a place, you know, a win or a place or whatever. And that went on for quite a while. And, and um, it's interesting because in those days, the Nippers had a state team. And, you know, I remember, you know, there'd be there'd be years and years and years ago by and I just never, you know, you'd, you'd look after the results and say, you know, did you make – because in those days there was no internet, right? So the only the way you found out is they published it in the newspaper. So, you know, Dad had come in with the newspaper and my name's <laughs> never there, <laughs> never was there once, you know. <laughs> And then I have this very vivid memory of competing at Coolangatta. I came out of the water after a race and, you know, I remember just looking up and seeing the guys going to the presentation and I said, Dad, oh, you know, and because my dad was my coach and, you know, he gave me a lot of inspiration, you know, a, a great a great deal of knowledge around the ocean and, and how to race. And I said to him, I, I, I wish I could be up there. And he said, oh, that's easy. All it takes is hard work. And probably up to that point I had – you know, you think you're training hard and we, you know, it was 30, 40 minute drive to the to the pool at Nambour every morning. And, you know, so I was going training, but, you know, how much were you really putting in? And, and, it, and, I, and I think that was really a defining moment for me in terms of, you know, how it changed my approach to, to training. And then, you know, the next year at Kingscliff in 78, the Aussie champs, I won the, as, as a cadet, which was under... 14, 15, I think we're 14, 15, or th- under 15 it must have been. Age groups have changed a bit. You know, I won the I won the board and I hadn't been beaten in the ski all year and as it turned out, and I remember this day, it was beautiful, you know, quite a quite a small break. It was pretty pretty flat but and also almost offshore, um, but I got a bit of air and over-enthusiasm punching across a wave on the way out, didn't land right, came off the damn thing, you know, and uh, I managed to catch back up and end up third, but... So at, at the first sort of, you know, my first crack at Aussies after, you know, having this sort of reality moment with Dad around what it took to get any better, I ended up, you know, winning a uh, winning an Australian title. So, you know, it, it, it came about through the realisation that hard work is what it takes. Yeah, yeah. And, and touching on your dad, he was a legend of the sport as well. He won an, uh, an Ironman event. Yeah, so so Dad, he was the first ever Australian Ironman champion, which was won in 1966 at, well, I'm going to say Coolangatta. I might have that wrong, but I think it was Coolangatta. And prior to that, he'd been in Australian teams. He was a belt swimmer. He'd won, he'd won Australian championships in belt. Um, he was actually quite a good pool swimmer, tried for the Olympic team in 1956, but ended up third at the trials, didn't get, didn't get, uh, didn't get picked in the team, and actually spent quite a bit of time 
out of competition because he, at the time, we lived at Miraburra where I was born, and he was the leasee of the pool. Mum and dad were the leasee of the pool, and so he was deemed then to be a professional, and just because he actually physically worked at a pool. And so he, and that's part of how he ended up getting into surf was because he could compete in events that had rescue equipment. So he ended up paddling the board and and so on. Anyway, long story short, makes Australian teams, Australians in California and, and other parts of the US in 1965. Dad's a part of that Australian team, wins the Californian Ironman Championship, which was the first time Australians had competed in it. And it was a bit different. We had, they had swim and board, but instead of the ski, they had a Cape Cod Dory, basic little rowing boat that the US lifeguards used for, for uh, rescues. And it was from that that the concept of Ironman was brought back to Australia and, and first introduced at the Australian Championships in 66. And, and he won that one and then was second to Barry Rogers a couple of years after that. So, yeah, f- first ever Australian Ironman champion and, um, and and he's won a lot of other titles too, actually. And and to be honest, mate, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if I, if I trace back what he did at that time, you know, probably the sport isn't what it is today had he not, you know, had he not been the winner of that, that competition. Yeah, it's a lot of history. Yeah, maybe if he didn't win that competition, it may not have come back to Australia and it might have been many years later before it actually came in. Yeah, and I, I end up, you know, and probably the only reason I'm doing the sport is because of Dad and because we lived across the road from the beach, etc. You know, if, if I didn't pick it up, then I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have gone on and won the, won the double and, you know, then, then you wouldn't have had the movie Cool and Get a Gold. And, you know, there's all these little sort of, coincidences along the path of history of you know what is Iron Man now which um which all in my view all trace back to dad yeah and then to go back when you won that first Australian title did that then spark that well I'm going to put a lot more effort in now I'm going to train a lot harder and then got into the Iron Man racing yeah I, I was I was um I did I'm like I'd do Iron Man at every at every carnival uh, that we could um, from memory, you didn't it, the first the first age group that you could do on was in the junior category, which was a three year age bracket, which I think if I was to relate it to today, it's kind of like under eighteen, so it would have been under 18, 17 and sixteen. So from when you're fifteen, yeah. So I, I just you know started pushing hard. The next year, the Aussie titles were in Perth, and I was I was doing. You know, every carnival I went to, I did the Open and the and the Junior Ironman, really for training more than anything else, and went uh, went to to WA and and won the the Iron as my first year as a junior. So I was the youngest of the three year age category. So, you know, I definitely you know got the taste of it after I worked out that it took hard work and that actually if you <laughs> did work hard, you could get a result. So that that really did. Um, you know, it was probably a bit of a driver in in, in competing in iron. Having, having said that, you know, I, I love board paddling. I you know loved. I really like ski paddling, and and um, and I hacked away at the at the pool as best I could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I know it's like this. It's tough that pool swimming. I tell you, yeah, it is, <laughs> and it never changes, mate. I'm, I'm 60, 60 next year, and it's no much more fun. <laughs> well, mate, then you did win the, the as you said the junior and the. The open Ironman in the same year, which was what I think it was only about fifteen minutes apart. The race, yeah, yep. They quite literally the 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 open was lined up. We we raced that race, and the and the, the junior guys were lined up ready to go behind. So it was just a matter of quite literally in those days they'd take you straight to the presentation dais, present the medals and trophies and stuff, and 
and uh, and I then had to run straight back down to the to the start line for the junior. So that yeah, they were pretty close together. <laughs> now, mate, from that time, that it basically put you on the map, didn't it? From uh, it changed your life from there. Do you think? Yeah, look, I mean, it did. It did do it. Well, yes, it did. I was going to say it did to a degree, but it did. It did change my life. I don't think it changed me, but you know, it was just. It was all of a sudden. There's this whole new thing. You know, I, I was I was working hard at it. I'd been the year before in '79 when I won the junior. I didn't contest the open, and I I'd done it at every other carnival. And and then I'm sitting there watching this race and seeing guys that I've raced and beaten through the year. And going well, I get no chance because I'm not even in it. And I'm not saying I would have won the race, you know. The, but but you're never going to win it if you don't start in the thing. And it was then that was probably the the defining moment for me to even contemplate doing the the junior and the senior in the one day. And so many people said, you know, don't even try it because you know, first of all, you can't do it. Secondly, it's going to compromise. You know, you got a really good chance of winning the junior. Why would you want to risk that moment? And I guess it was just because it was there. It was a challenge. And, and um, you know, as it turned out, it sort of worked out well. But then I and, – and I think that, that sort of – times were different then. You know, there was probably to a degree a lot less competition for, for people's attention. You know, so you, you didn't have social media. You didn't have gaming. You didn't have all these other things that, that people could choose to watch instead. And, and, you know, in those days, there were literally tens of thousands of people who showed up to watch an Aussie title, and and I'm not talking about the you know five or seven thousand competitors that surf claim are there every year now. I'm talking about people who actually just came to see what this was all about, and and just because it was something unique and it hadn't been done before, it captured a lot of media attention, and and you know sort of the groundswell sort of you know went from there, you know, um, so it it really did change. You know, I mean, I was at school, so like every day was you know you still had to go training yet to get home and get to school and and um so there's a there's a part of the day that was pretty normal <laughs> and then you know there was other things that started to go on during the background in the background and then off the back of that the, as you said the momentum and the, the popularity of the sport and then came the movie cool and get a gold like in 84 and how did that come about yeah so after the maruchador australian champs where i won the, the two uh next year was at wanda I won the Open and got beaten by Russell Cooper in the junior, which, you know, at the time, you, you know, I was like, oh, I really wanted, you know, to win to win the double again, of course. And, and um, But if I reflect on it now, I think it probably, it meant that the year before meant more to people because it wasn't easy to do, you know, and, and it's never been done since. But that was just that little bit of something unique that had happened. So as a consequence of that, I was approached by Kellogg's, which is how I then got involved with Nutrigrain. Nutrigrain and or Kellogg's and Surf Lifesaving started a, you know, there was a bit of a endurance Ironman sort of concept going on, which is pretty low key, but but it was the first of the professional races. Partly because of that and the ads that I was doing for Nutrigrain and and uh, and just the general press around the thing, there were there were sort of two concepts for a movie that had come from very different fields one was from car i think his name was eric carr out of the u.s a big movie producer he'd done you know you know some really big movies but it was a quite an unusual concept but michael edgley came and uh came to our house and and sat down on the balcony at, at our place at alex overlooking the beach and said to dad and myself 
I want to I want to make a movie about Ironman, but I want to make it about a really long race. I'd like it to be on the Gold Coast. You know, what are your thoughts? And and long story short, really over a conversation for a couple of hours on the balcony at the house at, at Alex, we came up with the concept of, you know, going the full length of the Gold Coast and back. And, you know, that, that from that, the movie was created and, and actually the race was created so that they could film the movie. So, yeah, sort of, you know, they're all, they're all directly linked, you know, back to the, you know, back to the race of 1980. And then obviously a lot of the races were short course, so no one really would have known how to train for a, a longer distance race. No, and I think it also suited a, a different sort of person, you know, and the great thing about that first race was the vibe was insane. Like, you know, there were so many people there, partly because of the, you know, the, the grandstand that was built at the finish line to, you know, to be filming the movie. And I didn't do the race. I was still mucking around with the movie. But, you know, there was all this atmosphere. There was music playing, bands there. And so just all of that was to keep the audience there while they filmed the movie while the race was going on. But I have this really vivid memory before the race. And, and, and again, remember, this is, there's no internet. There's not, people aren't posting. If you want to know how someone is as an athlete, you either have to have raced them, watched them, or read about them in the newspaper, basically. Um, so there was this great mystery around, you know, who these people were and who, who's going to be any good. As you said, racing was short course. It was, there was really no such thing as long course, certainly not to that extent. And... Um, I'm standing at the balcony of Surface Paradise Surf Club and I'm talking to Guy Leach and he's got cream bun around the edge of his mouth because he's just eaten a, <laughs> he's had, had a cream bun and he, and he looks and he goes, so which one's cool and gatter? He's looking, you know, <laughs> you know he's, he's got a head down there now. He doesn't even know which, which beach it is. And I remember through the day hearing the, the updates coming through over the two-way radio about, you know, who was, who was where and, you know, and how they were going. Uh, and it was it was extraordinary, you know, to hear, you know, Barry Kelly, who I paddled double ski with at the Olympic Games, was, you know, because he was such a good ski paddler. So, of course, the ski paddlers did well at the start. And then, you know, they're making their way back along the beach through the different disciplines and you get in these updates and, you know, the different names that were at the front and people that started to emerge from the back, you know, started coming forward. And, and you know, there was the name Guy Leach. And I'm sitting there going, yep, that's that young dude who's, you know, didn't really know what he's doing eating the cream bun this morning, and didn't know, you know, actually didn't even know where the halfway point was. So, it, <laughs> it was it was pretty cool, and um, I think it's a it's a great shame that the race has lost so much of its value, in my opinion. Now, you know the, you know, it was a, it was a pure hardcore tough race, and I'm not saying it's not tough anymore, but I think it's lost a lot of its meaning because it doesn't go from A to B and back anymore. It's, you know, always getting adjusted for whatever reason. And, and I just think that, you know, a marathon runs a marathon run. They don't say, well, today we're going to, you know, do three laps and have a little rest and then go again later because people might get tired. I, I think it's lost a lot. And I think that the, the athletes of the, of the early era of that event actually really, you know, I think they've stamped themselves in my mind and, and in a lot of people's mind in the, in the community generally they're the people that are remembered for that race. And I think it's because that race at the time was so unique. I don't know if you recall the, some of the pictures looking along the beach. And there's literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people, you know, and, and Leachy's running, there's headlights, 
you know, because getting late, you can see the four-wheel drives escorting, and it, it was just a sea of people. It was extraordinary, and and sadly, we don't see that anymore. Yeah, it was amazing scenes, and and I think too, it wasn't every year. It was every like four years, or yeah, it yeah, wasn't it a race that was on every, every year. year. So I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. By the way, I was no good at it. I did it a couple. Of times. <laughs> <I felt> terrible. <laughs> you know, there's short course people and there's long course people. I'm a short course. <laughs> yeah, I've only done it. I did it a couple of times back. Uh, oh, 15, 20 years, whenever it, it first came back, and then. Uh, yeah, that was uh, – I was just lucky I could paddle the ski and I could run. So yeah. that's probably more than half the race, so it helped me. No, exactly, mate. And, and the good thing about that is if you can – if you get the timing right or you're a bit lucky with the timing on the board, you can get on somebody's wash and drag along for a bit maybe, you know, and <laughs> hang in there for the swim. I remember one year I'd been in Hawaii doing an outrigger race, 75K race over there, and I was um, Dwayne Tyres was one of the, the guys that was in our crew in Hawaii. So we raced in Hawaii on Sunday, which was Monday Australian time, did 75K, and cooling out of gold was Sunday. So we got on a plane, flew home. I think we got home Wednesday or something like that with the time changes and, <laughs> and then somehow tried to get ourselves organised to, to, do, to do the gold. And I remember coming along the beach somewhere around sort of Mermaid. Uh, not, sorry, not Mermaid. It was more down towards Talabudra. And Dwayne had got away from me. Um, Dwayne Tyres had, had won, you know, he went on to win two Australian Ironman titles. So he's a, you know, he was, he was a good ticker. But he's sitting down. He's just going, oh, you know, I, I was, what are you doing? He said, oh, I can't go on. You know, I'm staffed. And anyway, I chat to him, dragged him off his feet, said, come on, we've got to go. We'll, we'll go together, you know, which was great. But then he got his second wind and just dusted me and left me in the, <laughs> in the shadows. <laughs> anyway, I got to the end eventually. <laughs> well, mate, then um – Obviously, after the movie and the, the long race, the series, it became more a professional sport. How did you find that now it was professional? Um, it, was in, it was a really interesting time, mate, because, you know, there was a lot of interest in the sport and there were a lot of people involved in it as athletes who were genuinely interested in how it progressed and, you know, how to grow it. And, I, you know, I, to be frank, that was just because that was self-interest. You know, the better we can make this whole new sport – uh, the more we can make out of it because we never were able to make anything out of it in the past. Unfortunately for me, it was substantially built around long course racing, which I was never any good at, as I said. So for me, financially, there wasn't that much of an incentive. But, you know, for, for Leachie and, and Trev Hendy and, you know, a lot of the guys that were at the top of their game, uh, you know, Guy Andrews and so on, you know, who were, who were really at the top of their game at the time, it, it was perfect timing for them. And so looking at what we had uh, or what existed at the time with the Nutrigrain event, there was a lot of, you know, sort of feedback. So the guys would always be like, you know, we'd always be talking about, you know, how can we do this different or that different or how do we get a better audience? And and really, as I said, it was it's self-interest in a lot of ways. How do we build it up, make it more valuable? Came up with a bunch of ideas and took it to Surf Lifesaving, you know, to then to, to, to sort of change change the way the event was run. And, you know, they, they knocked it back and, uh, you know, to cut a very long story short, as a consequence of that, um, you know, we, we said, well, you know what, uh, the, you, our ideas, I think, are sound. They won't do it. We've taken it to them on a silver platter. Maybe somebody else will. And eventually, after knocking on a lot of doors, we ended up with Uncle Toby's and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And, and, and I think that was a really defining moment for a whole decade from basically 1990 through to 2000 when, you know, the sport just had – an obscene amount of money, both when you combine the Kellogg's and the Uncle Toby's 
uh, contributions to the sport and the athletes. Because, uh, of course, n- not wanting to admit defeat and having rejected, you know, the opportunity to embrace the changes, you know, surf turnaround, basically they adopted a lot of what, what it was that we wanted to do. So they were emulating what we were doing with Uncle Toby's. And, you know, there was a lot of money thrown around to sign up competitors and, you know, the Mercers, you know, took the money and stayed with, with Surf and Kellogg's and the rest of us were, you know, branded as, you know, traders and we were trying to destroy the association, which, and we were trying to stop kids from joining Nippets, which could never have been further from the truth. We, we spent an enormous amount of our time was put into coaching Nippers and we were going to shopping centres. We, you know, the guys and eventually, you know, guys and girls who, who, who put in during that Uncle Toby's and, and uh, Devondale period were really put a lot of time in and that was what brought you know the success of the sport you know it had enormous popularity i mean being on baywatch which was the biggest tv series in the world at the time you know having madonna you know biggest rock star in the world comes along and wants to be a part of what you're doing and and be a part of the promotions It, it it you know to your question what was it like with the the professional time and as the professional series started to grow Man, it was a it was a whirlwind. It was a wild ride, and you know it involved you know court cases and and you know it it was wild. We competed in California. We competed in Hawaii. Yeah, it, it's interesting to look back on. Well, there was a period where they tried to ban you guys from racing in, in, yeah. in surf life saving Australian titles, and yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you know, I think that <laughs> somebody asked me at a at a press conference once whether you know we whether we were prepared to, you know, cop that. And, and my, my answer was one word and it was yes. Because if you believe in something strongly enough, then why not, you know, why not push through with it? And the other thing is that deep in our hearts, we knew right from the outset that we had one objective and that was to make the whole sport bigger. And the only beneficiaries, obviously the competitors had benefited a bit, but the biggest beneficiary is going to be the association itself. How many kids wanted to go to Nippers to become a Trevor Endy or a Guy Leach? That wouldn't have happened if we didn't do what we did. And and numbers grew. You know, the facts don't lie. And and the numbers just grew in such an extraordinary way. It was it, you know, makes you feel proud. And it and it validates your thinking and and it and it makes it worthwhile to have gone through the you know, the fights that we went through, you know, to then you know, to say, yeah, you know what, actually it wasn't a bad idea and we were right. You know, people people did want to join Surf Lifesaving to become a nipper so that one day they could be an Ironman champion. It was a great era. And looking at it today, do you think it fell away a bit though from, you know, the end of the Uncle Toby series? Yeah, look, it's funny, mate. I, I spent, you know, a decade after we created, and, and there was a large group of us, you know, including the promoters and IMG and, and Mick Porra and, and, a, and a core group of the athletes that created it. It wasn't me, you know, it was, it was a team of us. Um, I probably had the highest profile or one of the highest profiles at the time, so I became the spokesperson and I took a lot of the flag. I ended up having to leave my club. You know, we left Alex because, you know, of of the backlash we got at that level, um, which was very disappointing. I'm back there now, proud to say, uh, but it but it was very disappointing to have to have been forced out over uh, over a belief and something which history now proves was actually a good thing. But when you when you look at you know who was who was involved. What we did for 10 years was after we came up with a concept was to try to, you know, to beat the opposition, the opposition being the Kellogg's event. You know, we always strove for, you know, for better TV rating. We wanted everything to be better, which is natural. Um, interestingly, though, 
over time, I started to work out that, you know, this, there was, and this is purely because of the cereal wars. Had it been a fuel company and a food company, it never would have gone to the extent that it did, that there was so much bitter rivalry driving so much money into the sport and to promote surf life saving so much. Never would have happened. But as a consequence, the sport was living way above its natural value and its natural appeal. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd watch this happening and there was constant, you know, people trying to always steal it, you know, like Kellogg's would be trying to steal one of our competitors, we'd be trying to steal theirs to, you know, to break, break the, the impasse and just have one series. And it got to a point where I realized that actually, do you know what? The best thing for this whole thing is that the two of them continue to exist. And so that 10-year period, uh, roughly from 90 to 2000, when when the two cereal companies were really going hard at it and, and the amount of money getting put into not just prize money, but the TV production, our budget was $1.5 million a year just for TV. Wow. You know, and that was, and it was live. You'd go to Portsea, you don't have line of sight. You've got a satellite to get the pictures out. You know, it was, you go to PR in New Zealand and the same sort of thing. Like the money invested to make it what it was as a TV spectacle was extraordinary. But at some point that was not going to be sustainable. And, and a really interesting turn of events came about when the Olympics come to Australia and Uncle Toby's, are starting to get worn out, you know, with the process. They'd been very clever at ambush marking Kellogg's, who were a sponsor of the Olympics uh, at, at the previous Olympiad, um, and left themselves very vulnerable to the same thing. They took on the sponsorship of the Olympics. They spent an enormous amount of money doing that. That then meant that budgets had to cut. That then meant that, you know, some of the athletes would jump ship because they were getting offered bigger money to, to go across I remember having this conversation as I was trying to keep it all together at the time and one of the females who I won't mention, but I just said, you know, if this balance gets broken, it'll be the end of the sport as we know it. And for a lot of these people, this was all they knew. They didn't know the period before the start of the, you know, the serial wars and that there was a lot of money in it and, and they wouldn't be around for long afterwards to realise the consequences. And sure enough, you know, Budgets tighten up. Kellogg's signed a couple of big competitors. It's going to be great for them for the first year, as in the competitor, because they're going to get their money. I said, but after that, there's not going to be an event. And look at history now. You know, they're, they're, the, the whole the whole budget to run the thing now wouldn't have paid for our, you know, just logistics or you know, Portaloo hire. To be frank, you know, it was it was it was an extraordinary period, mate. And, and once the balance was broken. And it was back to one event. You, you know, the decline, the money invested by Kellogg's in the sport over the years has just continued to to dwindle away. And you know, sadly, Surf really allowed the tail to wag the dog, and they called all the shots. And there's been so many changes of direction with the professional series over the years that it's really hard for people to to build an affinity and you know with it with a with a star and follow them and therefore become an audience member that's that's going to make the whole thing viable. And I think that's a great shame because. You know, what What shouldn't happen today, you know, in 2022 is you go to a shopping centre in Sydney and, you know, ask somebody just a random, you know, to name an Ironman and they're going to say Guy Leach or Trevor Hindy. I mean, as good as they were, that's wrong for today's athletes, you know, and that, that in itself to me says that, that what happened post-2000 was a, was a failure 
for you know for the sport and for life saving. Um, so yeah, interesting times, mate. Very interesting times. But it's got some it's got some fresh air coming. I feel. Well, that was my next question. Do you think the sport can get back to where it was? No, and and, and I say that because where it was, it, it was where it was because of an enormous amount of investment. The sort of investment that you know I don't think we'll ever see again because it's not justified. And if you take that situation in parallel with the entertainment alternatives that people have today, I mean, on the one hand, it's great because anyone can watch it. They can watch it from their phone. But on the other hand, they can watch a whole lot of other stuff too. You know, we used to go to meetings with the TV. You know, it wasn't a random thing about where we were going to race and when and what time it was going to be on TV. There was such a big group of vested interests that sat around a board table and decided on ideas, you know, and we'd have representatives of the, you know, the promoter, the athletes, the sponsors, the television, and, you know, we'd sit there and I'd say, well, we, you know, we're the athletes and we think we should go to Portsea and we want to go on this day because that's when, you know, the best chance of big surf and a big crowd. And then TV go, uh, you know, well, that's no good because it's, you know, it's expensive to get the picture out. And by the way, we're up against, you know, the Australian Open golf and, well, you know, something cricket. There's no way in the world we're ever going to beat them. So we, and we never went head to head. We very, very carefully chose when we went to television, what we came off the back of. So what was the introductory audience, the, the people that were going to end up watching the start of this thing, whether they liked it or not, because they hadn't changed channels yet. All of those decisions were really important decisions in the, in, in what made it all successful. And, and today, people have got a lot of choice. That choice is on every day. It's, it's global what, you, what people can watch. So I don't, I don't think you're ever going to get the audience. Um, as a consequence of there not being, you know, the heroes, if you like, that 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 there were in the sport, as in from the names. And by the way, I take nothing away from you know Ellie Day and the greats of the sport today. They're amazing athletes. The sad thing is, people don't know who they are. You know, people don't remember. You know, the kids at the shopping centre. A lot of them don't know who Shannon Eckstein is. You know, like you know the greatest of all time. You know, that's wrong, but it makes it difficult and it's typical of today's environment and how difficult it is to be successful. So on the one hand, you know, it's come off a really big thing where you'll never get that sort of investment and it's come into a time where competition from an audience perspective and, you know, just entertainment is is much higher and it's still connected to this legacy sponsorship that is an impediment to other sponsors coming in because they don't want to spend money because it's always going to be the Nutri-Grain. So you've got all these forces sort of working together. And in my opinion, it needs, you know, there are, there are, people, there are people like Shore and Partners who, in my, in my personal opinion, are making extraordinary investments uh, in the sport, which, which probably if, you, if, you know, if they took it to, you know, a media organisation and, and analyse it, they go, well, you know what, you're overspending here. But credit to them for doing it because they've got a passion. They've got a passion for the sports. You've got someone who's who's going out of their way to overinvest, and it'll take overinvestment to to start to bring it back to the fore. But will it ever get back to what it was? I don't think so. In your earlier days of your career, which which goes in line with surf life saving, you represented Australia in kayaking and went to two Olympic games. That must have been a, a great thrill. Yeah, it was really cool, mate. I um, I remember the first time I got in a kayak. It was funny. So I, I took up kayak paddling because I thought you get a free trip overseas because that's what somebody <laughs> had told me. And uh, 
And I'm like, well, that's all right. We can have a crack at this. Um, it turns out that if you were good enough and made the Australian team, you will get a trip overseas, but you'd be paying for it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> glad um, glad I went down that path. Um, and, and, you know, what it had a bit of a, you know, there was a bit of a similarity. If you could paddle a ski well, you had a chance of being able to paddle a kayak well or, you know, well enough. And it was, it, and, and I'm glad I did. And it was an interesting experience. And it does make you realize that that other thing that you did or do, you know, is really small in, in global terms. And, you know, now, now this is something that's, that's truly international. But I think, you know, to, the, the thrill of going to Olympic Games is, is probably one of the highlights of, of my sporting career. And, um, you know, I'm just so glad that I, that I, you know, was presented with that opportunity and, and actually decided to chase after it. And you did get a bronze with Barry Kelly, who you were speaking about earlier. That that must have in a team event, you know, to do it individually, it, it must be unbelievable. But to do it with someone else, it must be just, uh, yeah, you can celebrate with someone. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know how to compare it to an individual win, mate, because I never had one. But but uh, <laughs> it, it was it was amazing, and and you know, it's like. It, you know, it's this partnership that you've, this bond that you're forming. It's, you know, the, you know, the days when you, you know, when things aren't going well at training and you don't want to be there and it's not working out for you. Well, you can't drag the other guy down. You, you've got to sort of step up for him and vice versa. And sometimes that's, you know, getting support from the other person or not letting them know how bad you are. Or if there is something seriously wrong, you know, having a discussion about it. But the whole journey of how to get there and, you know, the two minds sitting down with a coach you know, analysing races, you know, our, our best international result leading up to that was seventh place. We ended up third at the Olympics. And a lot of it was around, you know, how we changed our, our race plan for the day based on what we, we, we would analyse. It was very high tech in those days. You could get 250 metre splits <laughs> from your <laughs> other competitors. I've never seen that before. So we were just trolling through data, you know, having a look at, you know, the people that we were likely to be racing in the final, or even, you know, the semi-final to make the final, where do they make their move? How do we race against them? We've seen them on the water and we've raced against them, but is there something else in this data? Which, as turns out, there was, and we changed the way we raced and, and it worked out. But uh, but that whole journey of having two people sort of, oh, but what if and, you know, how can you, and, and, and you're both trying to sort of, you know, not let the other one down, uh, it, it was very cool. Mate, also you uh, competed in the the Molokai Ocean Ski Race, and tell us about how, like that, in those days, no one probably would have even known that race existed. No, no. Funny story. I was um, after the '79 Australian Championships in Perth. Dad had said, "Listen, if you do all right here, we might go and we'll go snow skiing in America," which we did, and he had to fly via pretty much everywhere along the way to get there, and we stopped at Hawaii. And someone got talking to Dad and sort of recognised him and then mentioned about this paddle between two islands and it was a race and it had only been going for, I think, three years at that point in time. And I was 15. That's kind of, there was this chat about it and so, you know, that was March and, you know, in October of 79 came back and 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 did that race. And I, I'd, I'd never heard of it. You know, I didn't know what Molokai was. I didn't know, you know, how far it was or anything. So, in fact... It was only about two weeks ago that I threw out the paper map, which was a really, really big one, like a wall-size admiralty chart of that channel, which had my plot on it from that first race of where we were going to go. I just threw it out. I went, oh, you know what, I can 
you know that charts on the internet not with the handwritten notes but yeah there was a, it was it was such a mystery especially to show up for the very first time you know and i'd never done a race when i was 15 i'd never done a race that long so it was it was good fun i think even there's a there's a photo back there on the wall of uh of me with the trophy sitting sitting there afterwards and one of the funny things is i remember in those days it was you know like just to get to the other side it would take a boat because you know didn't didn't know about catching flights over and that sort of stuff but the guys would be catching fish and you know it was beautiful hawaiian fish and then so they're making sashimi right there on the boat and i'm just like i'm 15 i couldn't even stand the thought of it whereas now i'm, I'm sitting here going oh Remember that time when there was all that sashimi going down fresh out of the water straight in with a bit of soy sauce? That was, uh, that was good. But, um, yeah, mate, so I first did that in 79, five hours and 37 minutes to win it. You know, by the time by the time one of my last races, I won it five times, I think 79 through 83, and then I had some years where I didn't do it as much or didn't train as much for it because of kayaking. And then I won it again, like in two thousand, or it was nine ninety. Yeah, it was a long time. It was a long time later, but yeah, big big time spreads. You know, it was like five hours thirty seven, four hours fifty eight, and you know, it sort of pretty quickly got down into the high three hour mark. And equipment was a bit vintage in those days too, compared to what what you do it on now. Well, that's what I was going to mention the the equipment back then were you know. Be good to get the young guys of today to paddle that equipment and see how they feel on it. But uh, yeah, it's a lot better now, isn't it? Oh yeah, mate. A funny, a funny story about that. Jeff Lamarzi, my double ski partner, I trained with Lemo every day. He'd he'd gone up to the to the tip here at the sunny coast and he'd seen this old Hayden ski from 1981 and it was there and he's like, oh, I'm going to buy that, you know. And it was it had been put aside and not yet taken down to the shed where they they sell it. Anyway, it sat for ages and he kept asking about buying it and it, and they just kept saying no. I eventually went back and told a story about the thing. And fortunately, this old bloke working by on the counter recognised me and he goes, oh, no, I can sell that to you. So I bought the ski, brought it home from my house to where the crew trained at Alex. It's about a 30-minute paddle and, you know, we'll often paddle over there, do the session and then paddle home. So I decided one day to take that over and people are looking at it like, you know, the, the, it's something out of, you know, the dark ages. And so Lemo and I jumped on it and, and had a paddle and, and it was it was, uh, it was was pretty funny because we, we had to work hard, of course, but, you know, then you look across and go, some of these kids just say, how are you not miles in front of two late 50-year-olds paddling this thing? And I had another one actually, a ski which was actually one of mine, which someone in Sydney found and reached out through Facebook, found my brother anyway, long story short, Jimmy Walker, got a hold of it for me and threw it on the trailer and brought it up to an Aussies at the Gold Coast. And, and I went out on it during the warm-up period, you know, when there's, you know, that early morning time when there's, you know, like a thousand people in the water. And I remember it because it was a bit offshore and they make, because they're all rounded things and they get the big bow lifter stuck on the front. When they're going in little chops, they slap, you know, and you'd be paddling along and these young kids are just looking at going, what is that thing? Or they'd hear the noise coming and be going, what's going on here? It was, um, yeah, it was a different bit of equipment, mate. And I was, I've got a photo on the wall in one of the other rooms of the race in 1980, which got cancelled when it was originally scheduled. Went over to do it. The swell and wind came up too big. Coast Guard said, no, you can't do it. I had my exams. I had to come home to Australia did my school, high school exams, and then a bunch of the local businesses um, threw in some money to get us a ticket to go back. So then I went back on the Friday, did the race, 
and it, from the weekend before when it was a paddler's dream, but we weren't allowed to go, to the next, it was dead flat. So flat that one of the guys paddled a K1. And I've just got this picture on the wall in there. It's like a mirror. I'm on the round bottom ski with a flat blade, seven foot two inches long, and you had to carry a safety pack. So you got this thing about the size of a, you know, a, a cushion off a lounge with your with your safety gear in it, and then <laughs> working your way across the channel. <laughs> I look at that and I go, oh, no wonder it took so long. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, with with some of the old the old gear, you could catch a wave, you know, a big wave with them. Whereas these days, I find they're so hard to catch a wave. Yeah, yeah. Or you'll catch the wave, but you won't be able to control it. And that's the big difference. You know, once the when when I think it was Burton that first started to bring out the sharper nose skis to race in the surf. You know, it, it made a lot of sense if you stuck it just take out the actual whitewater portion of the race. You know, it made a lot of sense. The thing was obviously going to get through the water quicker and so on. But, you know, to this day, it has its challenges in terms of, you know, how you control it, particularly on a broken wave. And you see so many people, you know, they do all the hard work all through the year and they get around, they get on a, they get on a wave and these things are, you know, off in a heartbeat if you're not right on top of them. So there's a real compromise between, you know, how, how sharp the bow is and how rideable the ski is in, in all conditions. So it makes for entertainment, but it also makes for a lot of frustration. <laughs> you just go, what the hell did I end up doing that so bad? <laughs> well, also, when you were younger, you, you got into aviation and, and learnt to fly planes and helicopters. And what was, what was this something you were into back then? Or how young were you? Um, mate, I learnt to fly when I was 16. So I had, a, I had my pilot's licence before my driver's licence. It was just childhood dream. Just always wanted to fly planes. Actually, originally thought, you know, I'd like to have a crack at getting in the Air Force. Turned out, you know, th- these two things sort of happened in parallel. I was coming to that point in time in school where, you know, it was about choosing a career and and then I won the two races at Maroochydore. So it kind of, I then sort of went on, uh, I'll go to the Olympics, talk to the, the RAF careers people and, you know, to, now what about training? And so, no, no, no. <laughs> so there'll be none of that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, really from that point of view, well, from that time on, it was for me. Aviation was just a pro. You know, it was I was going to be one day a commercial pilot, is what I thought. So I just slowly added to my qualifications. Um, started in fixed wing, then got rotary wing, and I fly both of them still now. I, I fly. I get. I'm very fortunate. I fly some pretty cool jets around the world, and uh, and love it. It's. it's um, I, I call it the world's best paying hobby. it's pretty good (laughs) also when you're a a, a top athlete and then you finally you know as you get older that sort of fades away the transition you know a lot of people struggle in the transition you know once you know you're at the top of the game and then suddenly you know you're not there anymore did that play a part back then with um, dealing with that yeah look Mate, I never really felt I, I never felt it difficult to deal with like mentally or emotionally. I just knew that you get, you know, as you get older you get slower. And if you've got other interests, then you're not putting in what you used to put in. So you probably need to put in more as you get older to get the same result. And as a consequence of life going on, and for me, you know, I got married and had kids pretty young. So you've you know, you've now got a family and you know, all of those sorts of things play play a role in, in how much time you've got to dedicate to to your sporting ambitions and but in parallel with that I sort of realized that 
you know, this is not a career. This is not something you're going to make money out of. You got to sort of, you know, you got to earn a dollar to, you know, to pay off a house and you know raise kids and and have some fun. So I, I never really sort of got to a point where I went. I'm really struggling with with what to do with my life now. I think I think my my after sport life is dragged me out of sport in a way. Like I, it got in the way of sport. So you know, I sort of you sort of realise the hard way that you you're not as good anymore. And as a consequence, even if you love racing, you're more than likely going to go and get some some disappointing results. You know, one of the great things about surf is that if you've got some sort of underlying skills to draw on, every now and then. Uh, even when you may not be the fittest or fastest guy on the day, you could potentially jag a result, and that keeps the interest mm. level high. You know, now I'd be like, yeah. oh, "I'm only going to go if it's big." You know, <laughs> although now <laughs> they won't have it if it's big. But you know, that's uh, so, so. There'd always been that element of it, and I went through a period of you know, sort of thinking, "Ah, oh, you know what? I've done my time. I don't, you know, I, I don't feel like there was anything more I, I needed to achieve, I, or certainly not that I needed to try. I would, you know, would have been great to achieve more." Would do better at the things that I did, but you know I gave it everything I had at the time, and I, you know, and I and I come away with you know what it is that I that I achieved. So I never felt this really strong urge to necessarily go back racing, but I just sort of faded away to the things I really enjoyed. You know, I love paddling downwind on skis, so I, you know I still do that, and you know pretty much every day that I can, I get on the water and you know paddle a ski and. Um, you know, have a swim and, you know, I don't paddle a board, but, you know, I go surfing and, you know, once every couple of weeks might go to the gym or do something silly like that. <laughs> but that was a gradual transition and there was actually a period where I had I had no interest at all in, in um, racing masters and I always looked at it and went, oh, you know, what are these idiots doing, masters, you know. Then after a while you go, hey, you know what, that's not a bad way to go back and race against, you know, guys who've been <laughs> racing. And I, I remember this one particular day coming down a wave uh, you know, for the ski final, and I look across, and Chris Maynard and Robbie Darrow, are the guys that I'm racing to the finish line. And I'm going, I've been racing these guys since 1928. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's that sort of core moves on. You know, we might have faded out and come back along the way, but but mate, to answer your question in simple terms, I don't I don't recall ever really struggling with not being you know top level athlete. And, and, and as I said, I think it's just because it was probably the other things I was trying to get together in my life that, you know, took took away from the time of, you know, be, staying at a top-level athlete. So it was kind of inevitable. You don't put in the work, you won't get the result. Yeah. Mate, there's another thing there. Back in the day of the Uncle Toby's when you formed – were you part of the band that, that was formed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was. <laughs> I'd love to say no, but that was, that was kind of fun. But tell us a bit about that. Was uh, how did that happen? One minute you're you're racing Ironman, next minute you're you're rock stars. Well, I wouldn't say we were rock stars. We had a lot of fun hanging out with rock stars, mate. You know what? It was this simple. So, Dwayne Ties, Guy Andrews, myself, Trevor Hendy, and Rido were chatting and going, we should start a band. None of us played an instrument. I used to play a bit of drums at school. And it was it was quite literally, it was like, oh, well, what do you want to play? What do you, you know? And so we sort of chatted, you know, <laughs> bounced it around over some beers and <laughs> come up with what we'd have a go at. And then we came together and, and 
you know, we, we were we needed a lot of support. You know, when you talk about a backup band, we needed a big backup band. But we progressed to the point where we could go and, you know, go and, you know, we played a few gigs and, and toured around. And I didn't go on this one particular tour, but the boys, the rest of the boys actually toured right around Australia and, and uh, just played small pubs and stuff and, you know, lived on a bus and had a great time. Probably the highlight for the band, if you if you like it. And, and by the way, when I say it was a band, we never, we could, to this day, we never came up with a name. We toured with the Beach Boys when they were in Australia as a as a as a support act, and that was that was pretty funny. That was really funny, actually. Oh, geez, that would have been a good time. Yeah, it was a great time. I just hope that any of the people that went and watched weren't, you know, still aren't reeling from how bad the experience was. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have actually paid for it. Well, I think they paid for the Beach Boys, and you know, they had to sit through it. That's how it worked. Eh? <laughs> well, mate. Uh, GK, mate, it's great uh, listening to all your stories. It's it's uh, amazing. Um, you've had a great career and, uh, you know, one of the legends of the sport. Mate, uh, at the end of the interview, I do um, a segment called Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you. you answer them however you want, mate. Is it, is it, this is a test, is it, or...? This is a test, mate. This is the, the, to test the uh, the skills and the brain that uh, as we're getting older. Yeah, good. <laughs> mate, the best thing about the Sunshine Coast? Now or in the day? Either. It's probably different, obviously, back to the day to yeah. what it is today. Yeah, mate, I, I love the Sunshine Coast. I think it's a great mix of, you know, what it was in terms of, you know, the beaches are still naturally beautiful as they were. Certainly, you know, what's gone on on land has grown over time. But so too have my interests. You know, people... People complain because people are moving in and there's more and more buildings and it's getting congested and, and that's true, it is. But on the one hand, I think it's been reasonably well managed, you know, to a degree. There's, we could always be critical of, of town planning, but, but generally speaking, I think the Sunshine Coast has done a pretty good job. But you know what? I moved here in 1969 when I was six months old with my parents. I, I moved into the area. I contributed to the growth and I, my philosophy is that Whilst I loved what it was like then and it suited my lifestyle because I was a kid and you could do stuff, you could leave your push bike down the road outside the shop because you forgot to bring it home and you'd three days later go, where the hell's my bike? And you go back and it's still there. That was what it was then and that suited my interests and it's grown today and there's, you know, there's more of the sort of stuff that I like to do you know, when, I'm, when I'm approaching 60. So I think the balance has stayed good and if I don't like it because it's got too busy because other people have come to enjoy it, then I should move on and find another spot. Mate, uh, what are you most proud of? Um, mate, I'm most proud of my kids. You know, it might be a bit cliched in a way, but it's, you know, you can look back at everything that, that you've done yourself, you know, which are, you know, to be frank, selfish. You know, if you want to be Australian Ironman champion or if you want to go to the Olympic Games and, and win a medal, it's, there's, there's no way in the world that's happening unless you're just 100% selfish. Having kids and watching them grow and, helping them achieve, you know, their goals is probably the thing I'm most proud of. Mate, uh, your favourite childhood memory? Mate, I think it's probably just going across to the beach as it was in those days, like literally walking across the road and diving into the ocean, you know, as it was in those days. And, yeah, life life was simple. Mate, what would you name your boat if you had one? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a couple of boats. And I'm still the proud owner of a 3.4 metre tinny, which doesn't have an engine, 
Oh dear, mate. <laughs> I, I would say bad decision. I'd have to call the boat bad decision. <laughs> mate, I've been I've been spoiled. I spent some time in Europe in the Mediterranean with with uh, with a with a friend who's playing I fly, and he ruined boating forever because he had a super yacht. Spent some time on that, and it's just how do you come back from that? You've literally <laughs> anything in between is a is a massive disappointment. The only way to go is to get back on a ski and paddle that. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, mate. My favourite surf break. Mate, I'll tell you one of the, the breaks, which is not what it was in its day, but is still, I think, one of the, the, the most fun places I've ever surfed, and that's Double Island Point uh, north of the Sunshine Coast here. As I said, it doesn't break today like it, like it did when I used to go up there, but, you know, I was fortunate to grow up on the Sunshine Coast at a time when, you know, Dad would have to hustle around and find people to go surfing in Noosa because he didn't want to go on his own. And similarly, we'd go up past Noosa, across the fer- you know, little barge across the river, and then back on the beach, and you'd drive north and take it in turns. At, you know, so there'd be a big, long, massive, long point break, and it was too far to paddle, and the walk was too long. So we'd take it in turns at, at driving the car back. So I, I think, you know, for that reason, Double Island's probably been it, it's probably the favourite. It's a little bit, you know, it's kind of unknown. I mean, having said that, most of the time I spend, you know, off Point Cartwright, and uh, interesting fun fact. Point Cartwright, past the river mouth and the break into the beach, is where Dad and I surfed with, uh, who is now King Charles III in uh, in the early seventies, and uh, we've got a couple of great photos of that, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So. Um, oh yeah, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good memory to have. Got got the photos around somewhere. I'll have to dig them out. <laughs> well, mate, GK, it's a pleasure, mate. Love having you in there for a chat and. Uh, Thanks, Hoppo. When I'm back up the sunny coast, mate, we'll catch up for a beer. Yeah, we'll go for a paddle first, make it worthwhile, eh? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to try and keep up with you still, oh, mate. mate you'll, you'll dust me, mate. You'll dust me. <laughs> now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, in the Beach Shack this week, he's back again. Reedy, how are you, mate? I'm good, Hoppo. It's good to be back. It's nice to see the sun finally shining in here after a bit of rain that we've had in La Nina. <laughs> mate, uh, I just wanted to go back and uh, get a story because it's one that you've told me before and I just want the listeners to hear it because I think it's quite a, a good one. It was the Cairns to Cape York and it was a road trip that you did for tourism. So... Do you remember that story? Yeah, mate. You and I have both done a little bit of for tur- a little bit for tourism. I remember when you drove some Ferraris down to Wollongong. That looked like a good trip. But I think I can trump you on this one. Uh, I was lucky enough to do a road trip with myself and obviously rather large nipple man Corey. And <laughs> normally Bacon would come along for the ride, but Bacon was unavailable, so they got Miss Australia to come along and. Miss Australia is very easy on the eyes. And this is back in the day when I was extremely single and, you know, a young red-blooded male. And <laughs> yeah, had, had the long blonde hair and, uh, and and no wrinkles. Yeah, long blonde hair back then. Now it's just now I look like a crinkle-cut, ch- balding crinkle-cut chip. So let's just say I don't think I would have had much luck. But, no, we were lucky enough to um, – we started in Cairns and we did all the adventure, adventure stuff to do in Cairns, like the bungee jumping and the whitewater rafting and then – and then basically myself, Corey, Miss Australia and a, and a couple of the team from Adventure Australia, they, we jumped in some land cruisers and we headed north and we were going all the way to, to 
the tip of Cape York and we just got to experience a lot of really cool stuff along the way. It's a very famous four-wheel drive track that heads up from Cairns to Cape York and you obviously you start going through the Daintree and then and then once you've gone through the Daintree the um the the land and stuff all starts to change and it starts to really open up and and it's just an incredible part of the world and I, I was lucky enough to not only get to experience it with one of my good mates Corey but also Miss Australia and we we may have had a little bit of a fling along the way which made the trip <laughs> even funner but apart from that we got a history lesson and learn all about how Captain Cook arrived in Australia for the first time and hence why Cooktown got its name and then made it all the way to a place called Punson Bay where we got up in a helicopter and it's just, it's almost like Fiji up there. It's a, you've kind of got to see it to believe it. And the great thing about it is unless you go up via helicopter or a four wheel drive, you can't get up there. So really lucky to experience that and then stand right on the furthest tip of Australia. And even that was a three and a half K hike in across some volcanic rocks. So, but we got there and we got the photo and and it was a great experience. And I, I obviously didn't do a very good job with Miss Australia because she never spoke to me again after the trip. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we might have ended um, up married, but no good. <laughs> I'm sure she had a great experience as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the tip of Australia. No, not, not with me, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, well, it must have been, yeah, it'd be great to get up that far. I've never been that far up and... So what's it like on the tip of Australia? Oh, mate, it, it just kind of looks a little bit like any kind of, I guess, point or headland, except there's a sign stuck in the ground saying you are now at the furthest tip of Australia. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it was just the cool thing was making it all the way there and then and then making it all the way back, although we nearly didn't make it. We actually had a really, not my car, but the car in front of me, which Corey was sitting in the passenger seat, they actually had a really bad accident. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is – is, is trail the um, the road trains on those dirt roads up there. And I think the driver of the, the car that was driving Corey's Land Cruiser was probably going a little bit too quick and driving through the dust. And and I remember Corey recalled it. And there's some photos on my Instagram of, of the actual smash. And they, you know, those Land Cruisers are pretty tough. And he nearly... Um, he nearly completely pancake flattened the engine. So um, he ran, they ran straight up the back of a road train and, and, and nearly killed everyone in the car. Lucky lucky they got the brakes on in time. But, but Corey said he'll never forget, just like suddenly they were driving through dust and then next minute, bang, yeah. they were just straight up the back of his truck. So, um, But we survived. They got a new Land Cruiser, Land Cruiser board in and... Um, and we made it all the way to the top. There's plenty of beautiful things to see and do up there. And we're lucky to do some pretty cool um, full driving down up that way too as well. There's a there's a section called Gunshot where, you, you know, it's it's as more and more four-wheel drives have gone up and down it, it's getting harder and harder. And now you've pretty much got to winch yourself out of there. So, But it's kind of a, something that all four-wheel drivers like to do. And I've ticked it off the box now. Maybe Jeffro can get up there and have a crack himself. <laughs> Yeah, it's right up his alley. Right up his alley. He'd absolutely <laughs> love it. Although you hop, be, being the age you are and stuff now, I don't know how comfortable you'd be in a in a bench seat of a Land Cruiser. You like to ride in style these days. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, might, might be a bit tough for me. The old body trying to bend into it, you know. Oh, mate, on your chief lifeguard wage, you'd be able to fly up there in a chopper for sure. <laughs> mate, it's uh, 
It's good to see Miss Australia's made it to the tip and made it back unscathed as well. <laughs> yeah, I think she's probably a little bit scarred. I don't, I don't think she tends to like lifeguards anymore, maybe. <laughs> Let's just say lucky Corey wasn't single or she would have been even more trouble. Yeah, I know. She might not have made it back. <laughs> she might not have. No, no. We know all about Corey. Corey, don't we? We'll, we'll keep that one PG. That's all good. Mate, <laughs> thanks for coming in, uh, Beach Shack. Another great story, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Now this week's letter in the mailbag is from Stuart. He's from Adelaide. And he said, uh, when do you think the tourists will come back to Bondi Beach? Well, mate, I think uh, this summer could be the uh, summer they all come back. It's been two years now, and a lot of the guys have, and people who have been travelling over through Europe and the US have said that a lot of people are talking about coming to Australia over the next 12 months. So I think we can see uh, some coming through now. The tourists are starting to come back. But generally, it's the end of October into November. Generally, the tourists start coming and they want to work over the summer period. We're seeing that, so I think we'll have a big influx this year, especially then into January, February, March. So we're looking uh, to be prepared uh, as lifeguards down at Bondi because I think the crowds of 30,000 will be returning this year. So thanks for your letter, and I'll catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.